pleasure and an honor to bring to you what today is the fourth in this series called Not a Fan, and we're excited today to share it. Uh, I want to ask you, if you would, with me one more time, would you just stand just for a moment, just for a few seconds, and find a screen where it's easy for you to see, and let's read the Word of God together. Here we go from Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your Word. Thank you for the gift of life, for breath in our lungs. Lord, just for an understanding today that we were made with a purpose, that there are no accidents standing in this room. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us before the foundation of the world and that even before it was all begun, you made plans to give your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you agreed to do so, that you laid down your life for us. I just acknowledge before you, Lord, and before everyone here in my presence that I can do nothing apart from you. I am nothing apart from you. But Lord, I thank you that I'm not apart from you any longer. And that because of you, now I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My, my focus is no longer on what I was B.C. before I came to Christ. But now my focus is on you, who I am in Christ. And I give you praise for that. And I ask you to do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, get in the middle of this. Be in my thoughts. Be in my words. Lord, thank you that you're in the thoughts of each of individual person in this room. And that you know the, the, the intricacies of the struggle that every person in this room is facing. And we thank you that you meet us at that point of need. And everybody said, amen. amen. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people may be seated. I want to ask you a question this morning as we uh, jump in. Um, if I were to give you a choice and you had the opportunity to make a decision between laying down tonight on a Tempur-Pedic mattress maybe let's say with about four inches of memory foam, or just the choice of an ordinary wooden box springs, which one would you pick? Okay, yeah, mate, give me a sleep number, baby. <laughs> Make that thing as comfy as you possibly can. I, I tell you, the older I get, the more I really need some good several hours of sleep. Um, Matter of fact, I think I'm like going back into my childhood or something. Uh, that's, this is why you have babies when you're young, because I'm 51. I can't even imagine at, now at this age not being able to at least string together three or four hours of sleep. So I'm, I, I am looking forward to my grandchildren when I can keep them and then send them home in the evening. <laughs> um, if I were to ask you another question, let's say this. What if you had the choice whether you could wear your most comfortable pair of tennis shoes or maybe one of those... A uh, Dutch set of wooden clogs. What would you choose? Tennis shoes. Okay. All right. Make it a little bit harder. How about we have an opportunity for a weekend getaway, and it is a spa retreat, you and your wife, and it's in a beautiful place. There's guaranteed uh, hot springs and a massage and wonderful food. Either you have the opportunity for that spa weekend getaway, or you have the choice to camp in the desert at the hottest time of year, what do you think you would choose? Give me the spa weekend anytime. And that's because we, we love comfort. We want to be comfort. We want to be comfortable. And I, I believe that probably more so that there is an increasing awareness of comfort. There is a societal value that is placed on our comfort. People 
make a lot of money selling comfort items. Uh, if you don't think so, I've already mentioned memory foam that is on your bed. We have a, a good, uh, what is it, um, Simmons Beauty Rest mattress and box springs, but we've added a four-inch memory foam. And I'm telling you, it's just, I feel like I've died and gone to heaven when I lay down in it. It's just amazing. Woo! And I'm telling you, I'm right now already looking forward to my Sunday afternoon nap, and I don't grieve the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord is leading me to a nap, and I'm going to have one after a while. We have lazy boys for our living room. We recline and we watch shows on our multiple-inch plasma or whatever it is, LED or the latest technology TV. We have body pillows. And yes, don't anybody raise your hand. I'm, I'm very confident there are probably several secret Snuggie owners in this room right here today. Uh, I have actually threatened to, to buy Jack Murphy, one of our shepherds, a Snuggie in a camo uh, print or pattern. Uh, and in the middle of all of that, we actually sit back and we observe TV shows that remind us just really how comfortable we are. One of my favorites, as a matter of fact, I've, uh, it's one of my favorite shows. I love to watch it. Is Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs. Anybody in the room watch Mike Rowe on Dirty Jobs? Just a, just a really cool show showing you all these folks that have uncomfortable, dirty, nasty, all kinds of arrangements and situations going in and out of very tight spaces and dealing with living and dead things and smelly things and all kinds of stuff that I'm just so glad. You sit there and you laugh and you wince and you, you kind of think, oh man, I, my job's not so bad after all. I'm so glad that I don't have, quote, one of those kinds anyway of a dirty job. And we sit in comfort and what, what, what is my whole point this morning? Uh, as we begin to zero in on number four in this series called Not a Fan, uh, the title of the series today is called The Comfortable Cross. And I believe that we've made the cross comfortable in 21st century Christianity. And number one, my point is there is a danger in becoming too comfortable. Say that with me. There is a danger in becoming too comfortable. We can love comfort too much. Uh, there is an increasing emphasis, obviously, in our society on being comfortable. Our society places a tremendously high value on comfort. And I think with that, uh, we have also gotten a view of the cross and our faith has followed suit. Someone asked the question recently, why don't you have a cross in your sanctuary? And we do, and we bring it out at different times um, and we deliberately don't have one. And I, and I want to preface my remarks by saying this, please don't don't think that I'm aiming for anybody or any group because this is just the current status of American Christianity. We, we deliberately did not take a fine grit sandpaper and sand this one down. It's not stained a beautiful pecan color. It's not varnished with a low gloss satin finish. It's not highlighted with special lights that create a mood. It's very rough. And it, it, if you, you would not want to come up here and rub your hand across it because you'll get some splinters in your hands. And, and, I, and we do that on purpose because I think that in 
21st century Christianity, and especially it happened in the 20th century, we've become comfortable with the cross and we've polished it a little bit too much. And I just want to tell you that Jesus didn't die on a cross that had been hand polished with fine grit sandpaper. It was, it was heavily hewn. It had splinters in it. He was, had things that were protruding out of it that stuck him in the back and that contributed to the complete painful experience that he went through. And I say that because there's something about us in our pursuit of comfortability. Uh, it's so easy just to begin to focus on things that maybe you're not quite comfortable. We, I, I, I'm a fall and winter kind of guy. I love those two seasons of the year. Summer is, is great as long as I can be at the beach, if I can be somewhere where it's a really great strong air conditioner that's working, or I can be somewhere where I can take a few pieces of clothing off and not offend anybody. Now, all of you are glad, you know, that, you know, there's only so many pieces of clothing you can take off in the summertime. So when it's 105 plus, I'm not very comfortable. And you know what? I'm probably complaining about it. I'll just confess my sin before you right now. And, and the weather patterns we've experienced in the last few weeks have just been crazy. I mean, it's just boom, they dip where we have a week where it's, it stays at 57 degrees. That's the high all week long. And we're actually starting a fire in the fireplace in our home, and and Dawn's added the the big extra thick comforter to the bed, and we've got this weight, and and it's all sort of you know making you feel comfortable and snugly and cozy and all of these kinds of things, and then boom, yesterday it's 84 degrees again. Got to kick on the AC. What's up? And if you're like I am, you're probably going, <laughs> grousing and grumbling a little bit. And, and then I get under conviction because I think how comfortable I am and how much I've gotten to be really a, an addict of comfort in the American society because we are so extremely blessed. Uh, we're, we're sitting this morning in an air-conditioned building that's warm in the winter and it's cool in the summertime. And, and if, if even the BTUs aren't pushing enough, we can crank up some fans, which look here this morning, they're running. And this is November. And, and, and you know, in, in the middle of all of this, and the fact is that, that you're sitting on a padded seat that is really quite thick. There's some memory foam underneath you today. And everybody said, amen. And, and, and you're thankful for that. But I'm going to tell you, when I was a little kid growing up, we didn't have any cushions. We sat on hard pews, and we had church for hours. Preacher would never shut up. You think I'm bad. We'd praise for an hour and a half sometimes, and the choir would sway, and we'd have a good old time. I was about seven, maybe six, five, four, three, whatever, underneath the pew asleep on a hard pallet on a cold tile floor. And we'd have church that'd go three or four hours sometimes. And man, I'm going to tell you, we'd fellowship with everybody and we'd shout and praise and having a good time and we praying for folks. And just, I mean, I was raised in a Pentecostal church. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm thankful for my heritage. I'm thankful that the Lord has, has brought me to some extent beyond that. Some of those things I've brought with me, some of those things I've left behind because of just, I think, maturing a little bit in the word. But I'm going to tell you, we had church. In Italy, we, said, we went a long time. We, we do the best we can to, to do what we do in about 75 minutes. And how many of you know the Holy Spirit can move just as well and easily in, the, in about 75 minutes as he can four hours and 75 minutes? And I don't ever want to get bound by our programming. I don't want to become too comfortable in a set way. And sometimes we do things just to mix it up so that we can keep it a little bit unpredictable or unpredictable. 
I, I remember how disturbed I was when I was my second year in college and I had been invited to go to Mexico on a missions trip. I graduated in 1979, so we came through the whole hair band. Everybody's got long hair kind of a thing. And I hit college in September of 79, and everything was preppy on the college campuses. And, and everybody had on a little Izod alligator or a Ralph Lauren polo horse. And, of course, I wanted to be with the in crowd. And so after about a year or two, everything that I owned had one or the other on it. And um, it's just, you know, it's, it's all about being really clean and clean cut and sharp looking. And, and for the first time in my life, my hair went over my ears and it's pretty much been there. Except for a couple years ago where I kind of went crazy for a little while. Decided at 50 I was going to grow it out a little bit. And um, anyway, so we're all in the whole preppy thing and we're wearing all these designer quote, kind of middle class designer clothes. And I go to Mexico and it's spring break back at school, but we're down, down in the interior, Montemorelos, Mexico, and we're worshiping with people in a little church that's literally like a baked mud hut, and there are no windows. It's very, very, very poor conditions, and I was just amazed during the week when we went out at a couple of times. We're helping them paint the church and helping them build a new little section that actually had windows in it, and they were going to have some fans, and they were so excited, so thankful. The blessing of the Lord our church was doing to help them down there, and we were, we were assisting a, a missionary who has, was a, an American, but he was down there serving the people of this village, and he was passing out great big heads of cabbage, and people were so excited. A shipment had come in from America, and they were standing in line just trying to get some food. It was, it was very, very, very impoverished conditions. And I remember being in those circumstances and those services and hearing people preach and, you know, they would just, they were hungry. They were ready to stay as long as we were ready to, to stay and worship the Lord and talk about Jesus. And it meant that a service was twice as long because I would speak in English and then they would give a translation of the message. And so if you had, you planned 30 minutes, it was going to take an hour to get a 30 minute message out because every sentence you had to stop and you had to translate into como esta usted. You had to translate it into Spanish. And the people were hungry. They were there ready to stay as long as they possibly could. And they were worshiping God and tears rolling down their faces. And I was just so impacted and blown away in this setting by these people because I had really kind of gotten proud of where I was. I was in school on a scholarship and doing very well and blessed and, and, and driving a relatively pretty new car that I'd just gotten as a senior in high school. And and I was all into the whole faith message and I was believing God and trusting him for material things and it was all seemed to really be rolling in. It's everywhere I turned, it was coming from different angles. And I went down to Mexico and I was worshiping in a place where people didn't have anything and it didn't stop them from pouring out their love for Jesus. And it just pricked my heart. It just penetrated here and I just wept because I came away going at 19 God, forgive me for being so materialistic. God, forgive me for feeling like everything I have to have has to have a little embroidered horse on it and it has to have the name Ralph Lauren in the back. And I, I was convicted when I came away from that seeing how much people love Jesus in a place where there is very, very, very little comfortability whatsoever. And it changed my life. And I saw to some extent the whole attempt to take the gospel and morph it into the shape of the American dream. 
in that we were making an attempt to try to sand down the rough edges of the message of the cross. And do I believe God wants you to be healed when you're sick? Absolutely. Do I, do I believe that God will prosper you and bless what you put your hand to? Yes, if your motivation is about advancing the kingdom and not just about trying to get rich. I really do believe he'll put his blessing upon you. I believe that he says that you can be like a tree planted by streams of water. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his law, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by streams of water who bring forth fruit in due season whose leaves do not wither and whatever he puts his hand to it prospers I believe that but I believe that somewhere along the line we sort of jumped the tracks and we sort of got sidetracked and it became instead of the gospel of God that is comprehensive and touches every area of life. It became the health and wealth gospel. It became the, quote, prosperity gospel. And it was an Americanized, forgive me, but a perverted version of the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, let me back up. Does God want to bless you and heal you? Absolutely. But when that becomes the only focus and we take out some sandpaper and we sand off anything to do with suffering for the cause of Christ then we have just laid down the true reality of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Because it's going to cost us something. And it's not always in a high-polished, high-gloss, perfectly temperature-set, mood-lit environment. Sometimes it's in a mud, brick, baked no windows, no fans, 105 degrees, a humidity that compares with that of hell itself and people that are worshiping God and not concerned in the least bit about their comfortability. Can I have an amen? Sometimes in the middle of all of this, we get soft. Even our Bibles are soft, leather-bound books. The messages sooner or later become padded with ear-tickling messages of self-realization and human potential movement, pop psychology. Is there anything wrong with motivational messages? Absolutely not. So long as they don't replace the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Doctrine becomes lifeless and soft. Eventually, the very message of the Messiah, the gospel, ends up becoming a moral code mush. You can say amen any time. I know I'm preaching real good right now. What do comfort-craving fans do with this cross, especially a rough-looking one that's not a beautiful stained piece of furniture, but it is intentionally offensive? It's hard-looking. It's, it's rough. It's hewn. Somewhere along the line, we begin to dub down the idea. You know, it would just be so great if we didn't even have to even pay attention to this particular element of Christianity. A lot of folks preach a kind of Christianity light. It's Christianity without the cross. You know, it's, it's, it's like a Bud Light commercial. Everybody over here, I want you to say, taste great. You too. Everybody say, taste great. Everybody over here, I want you to say, less filling. Come on, here we go. Well, just like Bud Light is tastes great, less filling, Christianity Light's the same thing. It tastes great, but it sure won't fill you up and it won't grow you up because there's, there's no cross in it. And it's a, it's a Christianity Light without suffering. It's a Christianity without the cross. Somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that. And into this mush, Jesus declares, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. In the middle of all of this, 
kind of a glossing over, we even repeatedly daily use the phrase to describe routine, mundane, frustrating routine things that we do. And we talk about, well, we all have our crosses to bear. And it's a cliche many times that is used to describe things that really are just about an inconvenience or something that maybe makes you just a little bit uncomfortable. Then we add insult to injury and we actually put it around our necks or on our fingers or we dangle it from our ears or it's like the guy at the gym who has it tattooed very largely on his swollen bicep and yet the one who hung on the cross he takes his name in vain every other sentence in a very cavalier kind of way so somewhere along the line the whole cross has become so familiar to us that we have gotten comfortable with it and we've begun we've begun to embrace a comfortable cross and and really you know isn't that really what our whole view of Christianity is about. I mean, is it the, because after all, the cross is a tough sell. It, it makes it hard on our public relations as Christian ambassadors. So let's, let's smooth the rough edges down. Let's calm this thing down. Don't preach so hard or so loud or tell everybody about suffering for Christ for the sake of the kingdom or about taking up our crosses daily because that just sort of ruins the opportunity to reach more people because after all, isn't that the point? Let's get the room full of people. Let's try our best to be able to get everybody involved. Wouldn't it be great? That's what we want them to do. People to come to Jesus, don't we? Isn't that the point? Shouldn't we make this thing absolutely as appealing and as attractive as we possibly can? American Christianity has done all of that. But somewhere along the way, we have sacrificed some powerful things in return. With that, I'd like you to watch this short vignette, please. Sometimes in an effort to get as many people as possible to follow Jesus, I have, with good intentions, made following him sound as attractive, as appealing as possible. And so I've talked a lot about the unconditional joy, the peace that passes understanding, the grace and mercy that frees us from all of our guilt and shame. Those things are true and they are beautiful and they should be spoken of often. But I've realized that I have been guilty of selling Jesus. I've emphasizing only the parts about Jesus that I thought people would like. Imagine it this way. Imagine if my oldest daughter grows up and goes to college and after a number of years isn't married, but she really wants to be. And so I decide to help the process along. And I take out an ad in the newspaper and I put up a billboard sign and print up t-shirts begging someone to come and choose her. Wouldn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem like they were doing her a favor? I would never do that. If you want to come and get to know her, you better come with everything you've got, or I'll send you packing. 
I love that. You better come with everything you got or I'll send you packing. <laughs> My second point this morning is, have we missed the whole point of the cross? Have we polished it so smoothly and made it so attractive that we've really missed the rough-hewn, offensive nature that's supposed to come along with it? Listen, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And another translation says it's foolishness to those who are dying, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what I want you to understand this morning is that this very symbol that we've made an ornament is actually a symbol of torture and death. Can you imagine what it would be like this morning if you had an electric chair hanging around your neck or on your finger? Can, can you imagine if you had a couple of guillotines hanging ladies as earrings? Or, guys, what if you had a lethal injection syringe tattooed on your swollen bicep for everybody to see every time you did a bicep curl and a rep in the gym that that syringe would flex? Because that's really what this thing represents. It is a symbol of torture and of death and of execution. But something has happened in the last several hundred years, a millennia and a few centuries. The cross hasn't been, been a means of education for a long time. And we've dressed it up. We've painted it. We've smoothed it over. We've shellacked it after we've applied a beautiful pecan stain to it and put it central over our baptismals with a nice bit of mood lighting around it. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But somewhere along the way, it's, it's, it's added up to, it's, it's given us this comfortability with it. It's made us comfortable with a very symbol of torture and death and execution. If a first century Jew walked into this church this morning, was able to time travel from the day of the Roman Empire when this very piece of wood right here, except it would have been a little more substantial than this, it would have been a bigger beam and it would have been broader in the cross beam because it has to hold up a man who has been sentenced to death. And he would have been hammered in at the wrists and at the feet and probably died on the cross and assisted if he happened to be particularly strong by somebody piercing him in the side with a, with a sword. This whole depiction that we see would absolutely be emblazoned in the, the cultural mentality of the first century Jew and they would know that it was the symbol of death and torture and execution utilized by the Roman Empire. If they walked into this room after time traveling 2,000 centuries, they would look at that and think we were sick. Why would you have that on display? Because it's a symbol of execution. It's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of weakness. For the Jews, the cross meant weakness. Uh, I, I, and I'm thinking this morning that that's exactly God's point. I'm thinking that that's exactly why God chose this thing. Because in all human perspective, there is no glory. There is no honor whatsoever. It's a symbol of shame. It's a symbol of guilt. There's something really, when you know what it was used for, it was disgusting. Jesus 
died on the thing that basically God said, I'm going to take the least likely symbol of life and love. He looks and he says, I think I'll use that. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that he turns the foolishness of the cross into the power of salvation. God says, watch this, watch this, watch what I'm going to do with this creation. Verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs. This is in 1 Corinthians 1. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Who else but God could take something like this, two rough-hewn pieces of wood that represent defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory. Who else but God could take a cross that represents guilt and shame and execution and turn it and transform it into a symbol representing the very grace of God himself? Who else except the creator could take a symbol of condemnation and put his twist on it and make it be representative of freedom. Who else except God could take a symbol that depicts pain and suffering and he could transform it into something that would stand for and represent healing and hope to the nations? Who else except God could take something that stands for death and turn it and make it represent and stand for life? Nobody else except God, but he can. What seems in history like God's greatest, most ultimate moment of weakness really is his greatest, most ultimate moment of strength. Amen? Here's the bottom line. This is what I want you to take away today. This is my last point, number three. What God did for the cross And I deliberately didn't use this in second person. I didn't say God can do for you. I want you to say this out loud. What God did for the cross, he can do for me. Make it personal. Say it again. What God did for the cross, he can do for me. When you are the weakest, when you feel like there's absolutely no hope and you are looking up through the bottom of the barrel, that's exactly where you need to be for God to show up in your life and be his strongest. Come on, somebody. This is the upside-down truth of the cross, that when we are weak in Christ, we are strong. Look at verse 27. Now, bringing this to a close this morning. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God chose the cross not in spite of its weakness, but because of its weakness. He literally says, I'm going to choose some weak things to fool all the folks who think they're so strong. Paul says God chose the weak things. Throughout Scripture, God continually chooses the weak over the strong. Think about this. All the excuses that all of our great heroes of faith that we love to back up and tell their stories, and they're all listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and we we preach their lives and the choices they made, and we think they're some kind of supernatural heroes, but yet they're just ordinary people just like you and me. Abraham was old. 
Honey, he had had his AARP card for 25 years when God promised him he was going to be a daddy. I'm getting those in the mail right now, and it, miss, it kind of misses, messes with my mind a little bit. I'm 51. I'm, I'm going, okay, wait till I'm 60 before you start sending this stuff to me. <laughs> I'm really not struggling with it. I'm just trying to be funny and keep you awake. Are you with me? Okay. <laughs> Jacob was insecure. He was a little snotty-nosed, sniveling, hand-wringing punk. I don't want to offend anybody because we have some folks in the church who, who sell cars, but I'm telling you, Jacob was the epitome of the tricking used car salesman. He put sawdust in the transmission, sold it to Barney Fife on the Andy Griffith Show. You guys saw that episode too, huh? You remember that. Here comes the steering wheel out of the column. When Barney's driving that old car, he was so proud of. Little lady in Pasadena owned it, I remember. Leah, bless her heart, she never was on the cover of Elle magazine. She was not attractive, but God used her. Moses stuttered. The Lord thy God. And he tried to use it as an excuse, but God said, tell him I am that I am is with you. He sent you. Gideon was po. I didn't say poor. I said Gideon was po folk. Everybody say po. po. Gideon didn't. He could. He could not. He could not rub two pennies together. He couldn't find them to hold them together in one place. He was very poor. Samson was proud. Now Samson was on the cover of Flex magazine. His waist is this big. His shoulders are this broad, and he's got Fabio's hair too. Just want to slap him. Body of Schwarzenegger. Hair of Fabio, and you just want to go, load me a gun, somebody. I want to kill that sucker. Just not, he's not even right. My shoulders are that wide, but so is my waist. <laughs> One out of two ain't bad, so. <laughs> Rahab, Lord, have mercy on Rahab. Hey, Rahab is just immoral. Now, I don't want to offend you, but I'm going to. She was a hoe. She was a prostitute. And did you know that she is actually listed in the genealogy of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Folks, ain't nobody in this room so far gone. If, and I'm going to say it like I'm thinking it. I'm not going to edit it. If God can take a hoe and put her in the genealogy of the Messiah, he can deal with whatever little stuff you got going on. Are you with me? Rahab, David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. A couple people in this room have probably, because of circumstances you faced, entertained that thought, and thank God you didn't follow through with it. A great leader of the Old Testament, a great prophet of the Old Testament, fought the same battles you fight. He was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was disobedient. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric. Are you kidding me? He was, he was a weirdo. <laughs> Locusts and wild honey, and he's dressed up like he's part of the village people. Help me. I mean, I'm serious. They were all talking about this strange situation going on out there, this dude that's baptizing people, and he is, he's like come up out of the hills from somewhere. 
Can y'all hear that? <laughs> Every one of these people, they, they, they've got some problems. They've they got, they got some mess-ups in their life. Peter was impulsive. He was hot-tempered. Martha was a worrywart. She was over there going, Jesus, would you just please get Mary up? I, I know she's just so excited to be able to hear you teach, but I'm in this kitchen slaving by myself, and I'm sweating, and I'm trying to cook you something to eat, and Jesus, I'm the only one that's doing anything around here. And Jesus said, don't take that away from her, Martha. She's chosen the better thing. Just don't learn to, you know, learn not to worry about all the stuff. It's going to take care of itself. And Martha was a worry wart, but she has a couple of mentions in Scripture in terms of Jesus visiting her house. It's pretty amazing. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. That's hope for people in today's society. Yeah, you've messed up. It didn't work the first time. It didn't work the second time. This woman had five, and she was shacked up with the sixth one, but she just met the perfect man, the seventh one, that changed her life. Come on, somebody. Zacchaeus was not popular. He did not win his senior year of high school by the yearbook staff, the most likely to succeed. He was not a, he was not a popular fellow. Paul had some poor health, little, little short not, not a very unassuming kind of dude, but yet he writes half the New Testament and lays the foundation for Christianity that's 2,000 years already still standing. Thomas, bless his heart, is a doubter. There's probably a few people that are sitting in the room this morning that you might be like Thomas. You might be going, I just don't know exactly what I think about this. The music's a little loud. He's a little bit too emotional up there. I don't know what I think about the dude. He's, he was talking about John the Baptist, but I think he's got a little touch of that in his head. Well, it's not, Something, something must have been in that communion juice this morning. These people are a little too happy around here. Everybody's excited, and they're laughing at church, and you're not supposed to have this much fun at church. And what's going on in this place? What's up with that? Timothy is just shy. He's a wallflower. Paul has to write to him, and he said, get up. Come on, open your mouth. Don't let anybody despise you because of your youth. Come on, Timothy, get up. God's not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Quit being so stinking timid. Open your mouth and preach the gospel, Timothy. What am I saying? And this is just a few of them. I'm just, just hitting a few high spots. The Bible is a long list of imperfect misfits who discovered that weakness is actually strength in the kingdom of God. The issue is, is that in our Americanness, when we think we're strong, that's when we're actually the weakest. When we think we have all that's got it going on, got our ducks in a row, we think we can come to God and God's pleased with that. It's really in the moment when we humble ourselves that we put ourselves in the position to receive an endless supply of His strength. Listen to this, and I'm finished. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in my weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's really totally opposite of what you expect. Let me say that again. I delight in my weakness for when I am weak, it's then that I am strong. And you know, we, we, we don't know anybody who thinks like that because that's not American. When, 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 you, when you went and sat down at your last job interview and they asked you that question, you know it's coming and you've tried to think of something that would be good and put you in a good light when the, when the interviewer, the potential boss of your future looks at you and he says, well, what's your, what's your greatest weakness? 
You know, none of you said, well, I'm never on time. (laughs) Nobody gets honest and says, well, you know what? I have a problem getting along with my coworkers. Or, you know what? I'm really kind of hypercritical of everybody that's in authority and I like to gossip. Nobody says that kind of stuff. You know what we do? We kind of disguise it. We, we try to make something that's really a strength, and we try to sort of paint it as a weakness because we want to put ourselves in the best light. This is, what's your greatest weakness? Well, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Well, my family says I could probably have a little tad bit of workaholism because you, you, you want to be viewed as somebody that's going to show up and really do a great job. And so you're looking for the job, and, and you're, you're, you're trying to stroke this thing, trying to shape it, trying to manipulate it a little bit. And it's because that in our world, we disguise weakness. We, we want to do all we can to appear like we're really strong, when honest to goodness, we're not. Because in America, let me just say this in America, but in the world, in the whole world system, Weakness is not strength. Strength is strength. 2,000 self-help books get published every year and they all have the same bottom line message. You can do it. Come on, try harder. Dig down deep. Don't quit. You can, you can find strength down on the inside of yourself. Just look deep within yourself. Just keep going, keep trying. Fake it till you make it. Those are the things that we hear. And the only thing is, is that it's every bit diametrically opposed to the message of the gospel that says when you can acknowledge your weakness, God can show up and show his strength in the place of your weakness. Come on, somebody. There's a family traveling recently. They were on vacation this last summer. A couple of children... The oldest one was a little boy. He's about six years old, and he's already at the age where he's trying to emulate everything his father does. The dad is viewed as being strong and a great provider and a caregiver and making the money, and he's successful, and he goes to the gym, and he's built, and the little boy wants to be like dad. And so he's packed his little backpack full of his favorite toys and some books and everything he wants to enjoy while they're on vacation, and it's quite heavy. And the dad and the mom and the other family, I mean, a couple other kids are a little bit younger, maybe didn't really understand, but the, the girl under him happened to see, that backpack is packed full. It has to be heavy. The mom noticed it. She responded. The dad said, man, do you want some help with that, son? And the boy did everything he could every time. They left out of the car, went into a restaurant. He wanted his backpack with him, and he would strap that thing on, and he would get up underneath the heavy load of that backpack that he'd packed, and he would always say, he would show them every time that he could do it, and he would say, see how strong I am? And as the vacation progressed, especially at the end of one day when they had really just worn themselves out, at a day of activities at an amusement park, and they're getting out of the car that night, his backpack was with him in the car, and they're going back to the hotel, and little boy is just exhausted after having an amazing day with fun with his family and being out in the hot sun and eating all the wrong stuff, but yet loving every second of it. So he puts the backpack on and he kind of grunts a few steps. The dad's up ahead and he hears the backpack hit the ground. And he looks around and the little boy says, help, daddy. Daddy turns around, picks up the backpack and he starts to walk and then he hears another big sigh. 
And he looks, and there's no words exchanged. He just, from eye contact from father to son, he can tell the little boy is just flat, indescribably exhausted. And in one swoop, he reaches down, switches the backpack to his left arm, swoops the little five-year-old, six-year-old boy up into his arms. The little boy is almost asleep before they go up the elevator to their room together as a family. And he not only carries the little boy's burden, but he carries the little boy himself. True story. So this morning, as I close this message, I want to say to you right now, every one of you in this room probably were touched by at least one or two of that list of Bible characters who all had an excuse, they all had a weakness, but God said, I'll take that one and I'll use that one and I'll pour out my glory in that one's life. God chose a cross not in spite of its weakness, but because of its weakness. And I believe God says, I want to choose you because not in spite of your weakness, but because of it, I want to show that I can pour out my glory through somebody who doesn't really quite have their whole life together. I want to show my love and pour it out on every individual in the creation that will just respond to me. And so this morning I'm asking the question, I'm saying for you, I'm praying right now, Jesus, do for us what you did for the cross. Take an object of shame and make it a symbol of grace. Take pain and suffering and redeem it and bring healing and hope. Take my confusion and bring clarity. Take my bad decisions of my past and redeem them and turn them around and make something that your glory can be shown through in my life that's a mess. Everybody bow your head with me, please, this morning. Nobody looking around. Just in the same way that over and over and over, a little boy tried to carry his backpack and every time would say, see how strong I am? I know there's some people in the room this morning that are under a heavy load. And you don't just have a plate full, you have extensions on the side and it's spilling over and over and over and over you've you've done the whole self-help thing you've reached down deep and you've tried to find strength in yourself and there's some people in the room this morning that are at the breaking point i'm not trying to play on that or on your emotions just really trying to let the spirit of god speak what i hear him say and i believe that under the sound of my voice there are people right here today that need to look at jesus and say help and just like the father to the son not only will he lift up the burden, the heavy backpack of your life, but he'll also pick you up into his arms and carry you as well. The Spirit of the Lord is moving in this room today in some very special ways among different people. And I just want to encourage you right now, as we bow our heads before the Lord in his presence, have you ever taken that step of faith and crossed that line of faith where you know that you know that you know that you've said, Jesus, come into my heart, save me, forgive me. Be my Lord of my life. The scripture says in 1 John 5, He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son shall not see life. It's, just, it's a either-or situation. It's very simple. It's black or white. Either you have Jesus living in you, and he's already turned the mess around, and he's showed his glory in your life, or you don't have him in you. The Bible says we'll all stand before him in judgment. And the only way we have an opportunity to experience the grace of God is that now in this life we make the choice to say, Jesus, come into my heart, save me. I put my trust in you. 
every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to pray for you right now. Anybody, nothing magic about you raising your hand. It's just saying, Pastor, I want you to pray for me right now. And I'm not going to embarrass anybody. But if you want to be included in this prayer, and there's a hand that's already gone up, anybody else in the room? Several. Yes, I see. In the back, over here on the side. Yes, in the middle. Now I want to talk to believers for just a moment. You already know Jesus. You've been walking with him. But if you're really honest today, there's something that's gripped your heart because maybe there's been a little bit of a comfortability. And maybe the things that you still presently struggle with, you've sort of laid back and let them become an excuse and you just let the enemy tell you that God can never use you the way you used to think he could. And God is wanting to stir you up fresh Hit the restart button, the fresh start button in your life. Pour his Holy Spirit into you afresh. Give you a fresh fire, fresh wind of his spirit. Believers, anybody who'd like to be included in this prayer, slip your hand up. Yes, there are a few in the room. All right, for the first group right now, I'm praying for you. My brothers, my sisters, you're crossing the line of faith right now, and you just pray this simple prayer, Jesus, save me. Come into my heart, Lord. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Change my life. Change me. I repent. I turn from my past. I look to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. God, thank you today that you do a work in these people and in their lives that nobody else can do and nobody else can explain it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're in this room and present today, moving and working. And Lord, for the believers, the second part, that I ask to raise their hands. Thank you for the work of the Spirit that you're doing a fresh start in their lives. And Lord, as they look to you, thank you that we lay down every excuse. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm, I don't have any money. I've got a, all this money. I have this business I've got to keep and hold and watch. And, and Lord, I'm not married, but I am married. I don't have any children. I have a house full. I'm weak, I'm strong. All these different things that we want to put up. Things that God says, I can use you because, not just in spite of, but I can fill you with my glory right where you are. God, thank you today for believers who've come to the awareness that that say, Jesus, do a fresh work in my heart. In Jesus' name I pray. All of God's people said, put your hands together, give the Lord praise this morning. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. If you made a fresh start,